When we think of the law, in both its purpose and its practice, we often think of persuasive arguments, enveloped in reason, rhetoric, and logic. We think facts and hard evidence, testimony of flesh and blood witnesses, and zero tolerance for nonsense. But the law is a mysterious body, and it exists solely to respond to the happenings of society, and in doing so, it often becomes a servant to its whims. In this podcast, we explore extraordinary cases with spiritual or otherwise bizarre themes, proving that fact is truly stranger than fiction. Sometimes there are trials. Other times there are trials by ordeal. Witnesses would describe it as an icy cold night Moonless and pitch dark with air so thick it was suffocating. It was one of those nights where anything could happen to anyone at any moment. Anxiety had been circulating as the whispers grew to worry and the worry grew to near panic. It was primed perfectly for a violent climax. A malevolent and rather physically engaging spirit had begun to appear around the neighborhood of Hammersmith, London. The men good men, good, honest, hardworking men, were becoming frustrated with their inability to protect their wives and daughters. Wives and daughters tittered nervously, apprehensive to move about freely as they were previously accustomed to. It had been a harrowing two months for the residents of Hammersmith, a harrowing two months that would end in murder on that icy, moonless night in January. A murder that would be punctuated with the haunt of a question mark for centuries. My name is Sarah Arena, and this is Trial by Ordeal. Situated north of the River Thames and west of Kensington and Chelsea, Hammersmith, London stretches across narrowly drawn boundaries and was home to some 45,000 residents at the turn of the 19th century. There was commerce and community, consistent with what many would expect of a London neighborhood teeming with growth and economic exchange. But perhaps the most important feature of Hammersmith during this time was St. Paul's, an impressive and intimidating Gothic structure with sharp turrets and an imposing bell tower. St. Paul's lended considerable legitimacy and pride to Hammersmith, but would soon find itself the focal point of controversy. In November of 1803, a figure began to appear around the churchyard of St. Paul's. Witnesses described the figure as a ghostly apparition, floating about in all white. It was there the whispers began. Some believed the spirit was that of a man that committed suicide, and was buried in the churchyard despite contradicting a widely accepted superstition that prohibited the burial of suicide victims in sacred ground. Others felt that it was a poltergeist, sent to sow fear and discord among the good God-fearing residents of Hammersmith. The rumors circulated the area rapidly, and the residents became on edge. One evening, on her way home, a young woman took her usual route through the churchyard of St. Paul's. She was well aware of the rumors, so she walked quickly and nervously. As she walked, the hair on the back of her neck stood on end, 
and she became conscious of a presence that she could not see, but she could most certainly feel. As she moved through the churchyard, she felt the figure close in on her. She quickened her steps, and she recited a comforting prayer in her mind before the world went black. She was found unconscious, hours later. Her memory was fogged by fear, and she was unable to recall the events that led to her faint. On another occasion, Thomas Groom, a brewer at a local pub, was walking home from work. He was skeptical of the rumors, but also well aware as he took his usual route through the churchyard of St. Paul's. But Thomas was not alone on this occasion. However, he was trailing his companion from work by several yards. Suddenly, two hands cut through the impenetrable darkness and clasped around Thomas's neck. Thomas struggled against his assailant and cried out, causing his companion to turn around. But, just as quickly as it began, the figure retreated. Thomas swiped at the air and felt something soft, something he would describe as a great coat, but he did not see a thing. There is a sociology to widespread panic, and sociologists have long since studied its phenomena. Like an individual person, a threat, real or perceived, elicits some interesting responses in the human psyche, and likewise, the collective human psyche. When combined with superstition, religious anxiety, and group think, a moral panic can erupt quite abruptly and spread like wildfire among a town, a county, or even a country. Without warning, the public can easily become consumed by rumors, alleged testimony of alleged victims that perpetuate and exasperate the presence of the threat. This phenomenon has a way of extinguishing rational thinking and lead people to believe that the only way to defeat the invisible other is through violence. And so, not unlike the Salem witch trials before or satanic panic much later, the people of Hammersmith were convinced that the only way to deal with this threat was to organize and converge on it once and for all. The men of Hammersmith decided to form a hunting party to catch and eliminate the Hammersmith ghost. The sightings were becoming more and more frequent by Christmas of 1803, and left without a formal police force, the townspeople formed a watchman party of armed men, which primarily maintained its post in and around the most frequent location of the sightings, St. Paul's Churchyard. One time, a watchman spotted the figure and gave it chase, only for the figure to inexplicably disappear. Sighting after sighting happened as the fear and panic were erupting. The men of the neighborhood watch group were feeling the increasing pressure to eliminate the threat to their community. Women were refusing to come out after dark, and rumors began to circulate that older women were so frightened they took to their bed and died of terror. The panic continued to escalate until one night, January 3rd, 1804, when a single shot by a young excise officer would cut through the tension like a hot blade. On the night of January 3rd, Francis Smith had a few drinks at the Black Lion pub to steady his nerves. He decided that on that night, he would take up the search for the Hammersmith ghost. And being that he was described as a good-natured and jovial person, Perhaps he was not looking forward to the prospect of confrontation with a malevolent spirit. Smith left the pub, 
He was feeling the warmth and confidence offered by the fresh alcohol in his veins. He petted the heavy steel shaft of his weapon for reassurance. As he walked along the dark path, he encountered William Girdler, the night watchman who encountered the specter in the churchyard a few nights before, but had eluded his capture. Smith asked Girdler for assistance, and the two worked out a system for identifying one another in the darkness. If one man shouted, who goes there? The other man would respond, friend. But Smith would have to wait for Girdler to complete his rounds as he called out the hours struck by the town clock. So Smith was forced to set out on his own while he waited for Girdler to join him. As he traveled down Black Lion Lane, Smith began to sense a presence nearby. Adrenaline pulsed through his body as he nervously called out, Who goes there? Silence. Damn you, who are you and what are you? Silence. Smith called out a final warning. I will shoot you. And with barely a pause for a response, Smith fired his weapon. A large thud was heard off in the distance, followed by a woman's voice calling out the name Thomas. Just feet from his cottage, Thomas Millwood lay dead. A single gunshot wound to the chest. As red spread through his all-white uniform, characteristic of his trade as a bricklayer, it was clear. He perished as a consequence of mistaken identity. Smith was arrested, and just 12 days later, he was on trial for the murder of Thomas Millwood. Speaking on behalf of his own defense, Smith said, My lord, I went out with good intention, and when this unhappy affair took place, I did not know what I did. Speaking to the deceased twice and he not answering, I was so much agitated. I did not know what I did. I solemnly declare my innocence, and that I had no intention to take away the life of the unfortunate deceased, or any other man for that matter. Smith was facing the death penalty, a common punitive measure carried out swiftly and deliberately in the days before capital punishment carried any moral compunction. Francis Smith was found guilty of willful murder, a charge we understand today as premeditated murder, or murder in the first degree. But that verdict was not the verdict rendered by the jury presiding over the case. When the jury returned from deliberation, they found Smith guilty of manslaughter, a lesser charge. But the three judges would not accept this because they insisted the law would not permit them to. The jury was re-instructed to return to deliberation and either return a verdict of total acquittal or murder. The jury chose murder. Francis Smith was sentenced to death by hanging, whereby afterwards, his body would be delivered to the custody of a medical college for dissection. But Francis Smith would not meet that fateful end. Public sympathy for Smith was immense and compelling enough for the local lord, Lord Chief Baron, to refer his case to the Crown, whereby he received a pardon for the death sentence on the condition he be imprisoned for one year. Shortly after the trial of Francis Smith, an elderly shoemaker by the name of John Graham admitted to being the Hammersmith ghost. Graham had been taken to the area dressed in an all-white sheet. His purpose? To scare his apprentices as punishment for frightening his young children with ghost stories. Needless to say, Graham took it too far. Murder can seem so simple, at least legally speaking. In most instances, 
Murder is either categorized as premeditated, unplanned but intentional, or accidental but the result of a reckless action. This is, of course, a simplified survey of how many Western cultures identify the varying degrees of criminal culpability for violent crimes resulting in death. And for these varying degrees of crimes, there are varying degrees of acceptable defenses. The case of the Hammersmith ghost tests the boundaries of what constitutes a reasonable defense of murder, and also proves the intensely impactful nature of legal and judicial precedent in legal systems based in English common law. The court record, whether a case or defense is successful, does not tend to die with the case it relates to. It is referenced when and where convenient, and what we allow in that system persists. Smith's defense of mistaken identity, mistaking a live human person for a ghost, would remain influential in similarly situated cases, and the questions incited as a result remained elusive and legally unclear for almost 200 years. The principles of self-defense in early English common law were formed but not clarified, exposing the need for protection of the law in the form of a defense for someone that believes that their action, even violent action, is necessary and acts in good faith but is mistaken about the situation. This remained true until the early 1980s, when the legal confoundment of the Hammersmith ghost was resurrected in a case. In 1983, a court of appeals in the UK demystified and formalized the law in a case where a young man was assaulted and mistaken for the assailant, when in fact, he was detaining the real assailant during an act of robbery. The court stated, in a case of self-defense, where self-defense or the prevention of a crime is concerned, if the jury came to the conclusion that the defendant believed, or may have believed, that he was being attacked, or that a crime was being committed, and that force was necessary to protect himself or to prevent the crime, then the prosecution have not proved their case. If, however, the defendant's alleged belief was mistaken, and if the mistake was an unreasonable one, that may be a peaceful reason for coming to the conclusion that the belief was not honestly held and should be rejected. Even if the jury come to the conclusion that the mistake wasn't a reasonable one, if the defendant may genuinely have been laboring under it, he is entitled to rely upon it. At last, the Hammersmith ghost and its peculiar but fatal circumstances were finally given a proper legal burial. The law is reactive and tedious. Sometimes it cumbers along a dark, twisted path that raises more questions than answers. But we continue to trust it. As a famous American attorney, Clarence Darrow, once said, Justice is not what happens in a courtroom. Justice is what comes out of a courtroom. Perhaps for Thomas Milhouse and his family, this was not justice. However, it did allow for a sorely needed nuance to be included in the delineation of what constitutes murder providing meaning and purpose to the tragedy. Thank you again for joining me on this episode of Trial by Ordeal. To learn more about the Hammersmith Ghost, I recommend the article The Case of a Ghost Haunted England for Over 200 Years by Kelly Buchanan. If you like this episode, please remember to hit the subscribe button and leave a review. This episode was written and produced by me, Sarah Arena. Join me again next week where we will explore a time-honored legend and lore in American real estate law.